Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay. There's been both good and bad news out of Syria in recent days. On one hand, U.S. Special Forces killed the leader of the terrorist group ISIS. On the other hand, the departure of some U.S. troops has led to a weakened security situation for many of the Syrians who have been persecuted under Bashar Assad's dictatorship. Many listeners, even those who follow foreign affairs closely, may find themselves confused by developments in Syria since the beginning of that country's civil war in 2011 as the country has become a deadly patchwork of different areas of control, with involvement from Russia, Turkey, Iran, Lebanon's Hezbollah, and sometimes even Israel. With me to discuss the situation in Syria is David Adesnik, Director of Research at the Washington-based Foundation for Defense of Democracies. I spoke to him by phone earlier this week. Here are excerpts from our conversation. First, let's focus on the most immediate news, the death of the leader of ISIS. What ramifications will that have for the situation in Syria? It's uncertain what happens to a terrorist organization after losing its leader. I think obviously we hope that by taking out a leader, we can substantially weaken them. And in fact, Baghdadi has been sort of an inspirational figure for the movement for several years. He is the one who declared the caliphate. But we've taken out other leaders of other terrorist organizations. The Taliban lost their leader. They actually pretended he was alive, even though he was dead for two full years, and then had others. And another one was killed and a third came along. So it can be quite unpredictable depending on the group. A lot of people listening to this, the first time they even heard the term ISIS was accompanied by these splotchy images overlaid on maps of the Middle East, which showed this ISIS self-declared caliphate extending over borders. How much of militant activity in the area is truly a cross-border phenomenon, or has Iraq in particular gotten control of its borders sufficiently that these are now compartmentalized militant struggles? No, I wouldn't say they're compartmentalized at all. I'm precise level of interchange, the ease with which they can transit the borders is harder to be precise about, but ISIS has sprung back even more aggressively in Iraq. It's sort of targeting bigger attacks, hitting more security force personnel in Iraq. You know, when uh, the president announced that we defeated the caliphate, he released this map, it was on Twitter at the time, and it showed that there were still areas of concern in Iraq, areas of ISIS activity, even though we were saying they no longer controlled areas. So, In fact, they've always been stronger, I think, in Iraq in the past year or so. And the border, while the Kurds were there, they had a pretty strong position and could help control it. And I think it was mainly the government of Iraq with its Iranian-backed partners and the the Assad regime who controlled some of it. But it's it's still porous to a certain degree. And I think now, as the chaos rises with Kurds facing an uncertain future, we'll only see uh, increased exchange. Can people be forgiven for thinking that Western-backed forces had already defeated ISIS? Uh, I certainly remember the big news in Iraq Mm. a few years ago now, when ISIS was dislodged from its last remaining major 
urban redoubt. Mm -hmm. Uh, And even in the case of Syria, it's been quite a while since we were told that what remains of ISIS were in scattered pockets, small towns. Is this the sort of thing that we're going to keep defeating ISIS, but ISIS isn't going to go away? I've seen reports that ISIS is actually a fairly significant force in Afghanistan now. It is. Certainly there's the whole range of, of global ISIS arms that we should be thinking about. They're in West Africa. They even created a new province in Central Africa. In South Asia, you may recall that they launched a devastating attack on a cathedral in Sri Lanka not long after we declared the defeat of the caliphate. I mean, so I think it's very important that everyone keep in mind the distinction between putting an end to the territory they controlled and governed versus their ability to function as an insurgency or, or a more shadowy terrorist organization. One of the questions as we try to dismantle the state that was the Islamic State or the unrecognized country was how effectively they could shift to an insurgency. How much would they lose of their ability to carry out attacks? And it does seem that their ability to attack in the West has diminished substantially. You know, there was the Brussels attack, the Paris attack. We haven't seen something like that again. Or their ability to inspire has diminished. So we haven't seen people like the Orlando shooter or the San Bernardino shooter in California take up arms in the same way. And overall, the the law enforcement threat in the U.S. is down. But they've shifted from a state to an insurgency. And it's, it's hard to beat an insurgency, and it takes time. So it's going to keep on going. So if anyone thought we had defeated them, that's why you have to always say, did we defeat the entire organization? Did we defeat the ideology or just the state? After Osama bin Laden was killed, we were told that al-Qaeda, to the extent it was still significant, was significant as an abstract brand. That is, people, sometimes even solitary actors, would declare that they were operating on behalf of al-Qaeda. Is ISIS like that now? And if so, are there any material differences between ISIS ideology and what al-Qaeda tried to advance in its heyday? tackle the first part of your question, I think that description was wrong when it applied to al-Qaeda. I think it had to do with a very optimistic and somewhat self-serving reading of the situation promoted by the U.S. government at the time. Two of my colleagues here at FDD, Bill Roggio and Tom Jocelyn, the, uh, the editors of the Long War Journal, were emphatic at the time that the U.S. government wasn't releasing sufficient information. And the more we learned about the Abbottabad raid, a place in Pakistan where bin Laden was caught, And the more we learned about al-Qaeda operations afterward, that there was still operational control. Anyone who thought it was just a brand that was undermined by documents showing that bin Laden's successor, Ayman al-Zawahiri, the Egyptian physician and number two in the organization at the time, meaning while bin Laden was alive, he was exerting operational control, managing details all over the globe as far as West Africa. The New York Times reporter Rukmini Kalamaki did great work on this, went there with plastic bags to get documents out of battlefields and showed that this was still happening. So I think it was a mistake then with al-Qaeda. We've seen that and we shouldn't expect it to diminish to just a quote-unquote brand at this point either. I mean, we'll see. We don't know. Each of these is a unique matter. And you specifically asked, what about the ideology is different? And I think one of the key contrasts in ideology that that distinguished al-Qaeda from the Islamic State is al-Qaeda had a very long-term view of when the the caliphate could be reestablished, when there could be a state. It was potentially a a century-long project or even something beyond any horizon of anyone alive that it would be the time when we could find they could finally kick out every sort of Western-oriented dictatorship or other kind of dictatorship that was keeping them down in the Middle East. 
the Islamic State. In contrast, it said, no, we're going to build an Islamic State now. So the name sort of fits. And then, quite remarkably, they did it very quickly. It was in Mosul in northern Iraq where Baghdadi himself declared the caliphate and himself as caliph and soon went on to rule something that's roughly described as the size of the United Kingdom straddling the Iraqi and Syrian border. And that was just an amazing moment for people inclined to extreme Islamic beliefs because they said someone is fulfilling our, our deepest wish. And tens of thousands of them went to volunteer and many, many others committed terror attacks within their own countries. Let's talk about the Kurds for a little bit. I've heard it said that the Kurds are the largest stateless entity they're spread out over Iraq and Syria and neighboring countries. They have carved out what sometimes has been described as a relatively autonomous area for themselves in northern Iraq. Mm -hmm. And it looked as if that were going to happen in Syria. How significant is it, this recent news of Donald Trump withdrawing American forces from the area? Because based on the bipartisan criticism that Trump has received, it seems like this is a real disaster for Kurds who are looking for safety and perhaps autonomy within Syria's borders. Yes. In my own writing, I've been very harsh about it. I think that probably is the right characterization of the Kurds as the largest stateless group, especially if we count the Pashtuns in South Asia as if you count Afghanistan as their state, even though they're not a majority. They've also been a group that has had that challenge. But the Kurds really aren't even, aren't more than a minority in any of the four states where they have a main presence, Turkey, Iran, Iraq, Syria. So, you know, what does it mean for them? What are they losing? So they really did have this good situation. Uh, it's important to note that it began in 2012 before there was a U.S. presence, that as Assad sort of had to retreat quite a bit and make difficult choices during the early phases of the uprising against him and the civil war, one of the strategic calculations he made was to basically let the Kurds handle their own affairs, uh, mainly in, in northeastern Syria, that they would probably keep a lot of civil servants on, people at the oil companies would keep doing their job, and to the extent they could keep pumping oil, and that actually never stopped in certain amounts, and nowhere near the full capacity. So there was actually a pretty good relationship between the Kurds and the regime. They didn't like necessarily the way Assad ran things compared to what they might want for themselves, but it was workable, and they also had a relationship uh, with Iran. They had some ties with Russia. So it was, it was certainly better than perhaps dealing with the Islamic State, which is what they would soon have to do as Assad's situation worsened. And then there was the, the fight on Kobane, this border town right near Turkey, where the Kurds were besieged. And that was basically the moment where the Obama administration decided it had had enough. It was already sort of intervening a bit in Iraq to help the Yazidis and deal with ISIS. And then we started helping the Kurds there. The, the Turks laid back. Basically, they could watch the battle going on from their borders and didn't help the Kurds. The Turks were deeply implicated in promoting jihadist extremism in Syria the entire time, and it hasn't stopped. So we came in, we helped the Kurds, and the really remarkable success started under Obama, even though Trump takes pretty much all the credit for it, but it accelerated in 2017, carved out basically 30% of Syria from the Euphrates River to the northeast. So the Euphrates sort of cuts off a triangle of northeastern Syria from the rest of the country. And everything, it's not all Kurdish majority, but it was basically an area where the Kurdish-led force we built up, or the Kurdish-dominant force, the SDF, Syrian Democratic Forces, became an exceptionally influential place. 
fire. And we only had a couple thousand troops. We weren't really, meaning we, the United States, we weren't, uh, the U.S. wasn't really involved so much in governance. So the Kurds really had a free hand to arrange things and run their affairs as they wanted. There were excesses as well as good moments, but compared to all the other people around them, they were running a relatively tolerant and functional state by the standards of the region. So the idea that now they're giving up major ground both to the Syrian regime, to the Russians and the Turks while we retreat is a major loss of what they had. The conflict in Syria has been going on for a long time now. Is it still accurate to call it a civil war or is Syria essentially a failed state that people are haggling over how it's going to be apportioned? I'd probably incline away from the failed state. I mean, it's as far as governments go, there's very little you would say about the Assad regime that's successful, but it's there and it's controlling sort of the northwest spine just uh, inland from the Mediterranean, that is Syria's most populated area. It's it's pretty much utterly dependent on the Iranians and Russians, so it's really more of a client state than a failed state. A lot of the functions we would want from a state in terms of social services, economy, of course, any measure of political stability and freedom, it's not providing. But in terms of an entity that's controlling terrain and excluding others, it's relatively effective in that regard. And it's probably, especially given you know the U.S. reducing its influence, likely to increase. Whether we call it a civil war is a bit more complicated. The place where Baghdadi was caught in the raid in northwest Syria, there continues to be pretty much a warlike situation and all sorts of atrocities such as bombing hospitals by the government and its Russian backers. That sort of sounds a lot like a war. And of course, there's the area we were just talking about in the northeast where there was really very little violence going across that Euphrates River line. But to the extent that Assad still said his goal was to bring every inch of Syria back under his centralized control, you may have had something that resembled a pause in a civil war. Do you think it's realistic that the Syrian government will accomplish Bashar Assad's ambition and reclaim every square inch of Syrian territory? I think the odds are pretty low, but certainly if the U.S., certainly if we withdrew everyone, as Trump intended to do, and left nothing behind, that was going to increase it substantially. If if the U.S. really took every last one of its troops out without the intelligence, surveillance, airstrike, and supporting capabilities that we provided, the Kurds and some of the other Arab components of the SDF, the Syrian Democratic Forces, they had tremendous numbers, but without those extra capabilities, they, they really would have a very hard time and might not want to just spill a lot of blood for what would eventually be a loss. And as they actually did, they pretty quickly cut a deal with the regime and would likely say, we'll accept you back. Just give us a little measure of control, a slightly better deal than we had before. And that that was on its way to happening. The two tougher areas are going to be the parts controlled by the Turks. So the Turks already last year invaded an area called Afrin that was Kurdish controlled and are basically in there. Reports indicate they're basically flushing out the Kurdish population and trying to replace it with a more pro-Turkey population, something pretty close to ethnic cleansing. There's a, there was even an earlier Turkish incursion in 2016 where they did something else in another Kurdish area. It's going to be very hard to see how Assad gets those back. In, in a way, it's really in Putin's hands. He, he's the power broker who can decide how far Turkey can go and how far Syria can push back. He has good ties to all, to both of them as well as to Iran, who's a key player. He basically controls the skies in those areas. You know, Russia far and away the most powerful air force 
force and other advanced capabilities, even if it's not providing that much on the ground. So it'll depend on what Putin's willing to give and now on what the U.S. insists is its own. And then finally, there is a slice of area still held by jihadists, Sunni Islamic extremists, mainly in the province of Idlib. And if we turn away, Assad, at the proper moment, probably can kill however many people there is necessary to bring it under his control. We've reached the midpoint in this Quillette podcast, which we'll resume very shortly. But first, a short message from our commercial supporters at BetterHelp, an online counseling service that helps people become happier and more productive. By logging on at BetterHelp, you can connect with your professional licensed counselor in a safe and private online environment according to your own pace and schedule, using secure video or phone sessions, as well as online chat and text. Some of the specialties of BetterHelp counselors include depression, anger, stress, anxiety, relationship problems, sleep trouble, and trauma. BetterHelp uses a network of 3,000 licensed therapists across all 50 U.S. states, and you can switch therapists at no charge to make sure you find the right fit. Financial aid is available for those who qualify. And of course, anything you share with the professionals at BetterHelp is strictly confidential. Quillette podcast listeners get 10% off their first month's service by using the discount code Quillette. If you'd like to know more, please go to betterhelp.com slash Quillette. That's betterhelp.com slash Quillette. And now back to our podcast. Where do you get your information about Syria? If you're not an Arabic speaker, are there ways that people listening to this could get raw news reports from the region that aren't filtered by traditional mainstream channels? That's a good question. So in a way, I am an aspiring Arabic speaker. Despite three years of coursework, I can't claim to have really useful abilities. As an institution, uh, you know, FDD, we make a point of always having advanced or native Persian and Arabic speakers here. So in terms of the collective work we do, it's always going to be informed by uh, consultation with uh, the primary language material. And it's a team effort. And I, you know, should give a shout out to my colleagues in that regard. You know, there are some interesting places. There's a website called Syrian Observer, which basically just translates into English local media. I believe it's it's supported by the EU funding of some kind, but you don't quote me on that. But they, they translate a lot of the material from whether it's the Syrian Arab News Agency, which is Assad's news propaganda organ, from any number of the opposition media outlets. You know, Twitter is actually a remarkable resource. There's plenty of things to dislike about Twitter, but a lot of really interesting people are on it and giving firsthand accounts. And then you also have really informed English speakers who are top Syria analysts who are filtering that material and try to assess its credibility and, you know, say, okay, is this a real video of a killing or a hospital bombing taking place? Or is this something someone borrowed perhaps from another civil war and are just telling people it's Syria? What's interesting and as a note of caution is, you know, Google Translate's abilities have gotten so advanced that some people can, you know, sort of represent themselves as really consulting the primary language material, but they're really just hitting translate. You know, I know from the languages I do speak that if you just trust an auto translator, you're going to miss a lot of nuances. Let's talk a little bit about the reason that we remain interested in Syria, aside from the obvious humanitarian plight. What do you say to those who are of a pronounced libertarian mindset, 
And there are those within the Republican Party who are always looking for an opportunity to divest the United States of foreign entanglements. Because some see the Russians taking more of a leadership role there, and they say, you know what, maybe that's for the best. We don't have any direct interests in Syria. Syria, even if it regains complete territorial integrity, isn't much of a military threat to Israel, which of course is an American ally. What's wrong with letting other regional actors and Russia take more of a leadership role while America says, you know what, we've been in this for a long time, it's time for other people to take over? Uh, It's a great question in the sense it's a classic question that has been debated in so many different venues from Korea to Vietnam to Iraq to Afghanistan. And in every case, I think it's important that those of us who are in favor of a more engaged approach try to delineate very clearly and address the challenge of why some people might think it's not connected. So the terrorism part is going to be a big component here. And if you want to know why can't someone else take a leadership role, So first, if you want to say Russia ought to take a leadership role, you should be very clear that you're jettisoning absolutely any concern for human rights or humanitarian welfare, that they have a demonstrated record of bombing one hospital after another, uh, giving an implicit green light to Assad's chemical weapons. In one of the most striking examples, there were hospital facilities that gave their coordinates to the UN uh, in Syria, and the UN basically passed them on to Russia to say, hey, you don't want to bomb these. Well, guess which facilities were promptly hit by airstrikes? So if you want to talk about leadership, it's that kind. You'd be trusting a situation where the Russians have absolutely no ethical constraints. And you can talk about what about the collateral damage from U.S airstrikes, but it's a world of difference in terms of both intent and casualties when you're letting Putin make that call. But there are hard-bitten people, whether, you know, a very Kissingerian strain would say, okay, but tell me, I'm American, that's not my problem. And then the question is, well, what do you get out of a situation like that if you let Russia take the lead? Can they actually put down the Islamic State or anyone else, right? So Trump's line has always been, they hate the Islamic State as much as we do. So for one thing, there's a concern that how many people are they going to provoke to join the Islamic State? That, you know, part of the reason you had its emergence and the emergence of other jihadi groups that are quite dangerous in Syria is just the untrammeled brutality of the Assad regime as supported by Iran and Russia. So if you're confident that those organizations are going to do a good job of cracking down on people who threaten the United States, I think the the track record is going to show they're not. There have been exaggerated views which said that they're secretly happy to have the Islamic State grow stronger or they never attack the Islamic State because they just want to have an an extreme adversary. I think there are cases where they, they think like that, but in a way, Putin's focus was always just on keeping Assad in power no matter the cost, and he wasn't going to focus on what was being done against the Islamic State. And I'd go another step further and say, I doubt he has the capabilities. Russian special forces could not have gone in and organized a coalition with 60,000 Kurdish and Arab fighters to bring down the Islamic State, nor could they have brought in dozens of other foreign actors, British, French, Gulf states, etc. So certainly in Syria, it's going to relate to terrorism. You brought up the question about Israel, but it's actually quite important to realize that there is a major threat to Israel in especially southern Syria, but also elsewhere. Part of the price of Assad being saved by Iran, which provided the ground forces while Putin provided the air forces, is that southern Syria is gradually becoming a a launch pad for Iran to put missiles or other kinds of rocket attacks into northern Israel. They've only done a couple, but in large part, that's because Israel has now admitted it's launched hundreds of airstrikes at a range of targets across Syria to destroy advanced capabilities there. 
Israel, good. It's doing a great job so far of taking care of things on its own. But you certainly, Russia isn't going to do much to prevent Iran. It's going to, it'll lay back and let Israel hit Iran, but it's certainly not stopping Iran. And that relates more broadly to the Iranian threat. So if we look strategically at the region, you know, you have the Sunni threat we've been talking about a lot, and then you have the Shiite threat encapsulated by Iran's efforts to destabilize things and build a nuclear weapon. There is obviously a whole debate about the nuclear deal and, of course, the Obama administration's case that they had solved that problem to a certain extent. Uh, We can talk about why I think that's not the case. But if you think you're going to have Russia or anyone else come in and deal with either the Sunni or the Shiite threat, I think you really have an uphill battle to make in terms of the evidence. Another kind of article that people got used to reading was the tragic profile of a family in Minnesota or New York, or it could be anywhere in the West, really, whose son or daughter went off to Iraq or Syria to join the Islamic State, Mm -hmm. became radicalized. You don't see that story as much. Is it now less common for young men and women in particular to to get seduced by the lure of going to fight for ISIS or some other radical group in Iraq or Syria? Uh, that is my understanding. Uh, I don't track it firsthand myself. The George Washington Uni- University program on extremism has done some phenomenal work tracking this. Certainly on the United States, they were basically looking at every kind of indictment charge, other law enforcement material, indicating any kind of effort to deal with someone who had become radicalized, either that was potentially going to commit an attack here or go over to, to a foreign country to engage with ISIS. And it looked like even as early as 2017, we were seeing a pretty significant drop, that if you think of the, the Orlando shooting in 2016 as sort of the peak activity, it really did start to fall off. And I think this is sort of a vindication of the idea that the existence of a physical caliphate was a very inspirational point. And just to give a little bit of background on that, from the time of the Prophet Muhammad until the end of World War One, there was a real existing caliphate. The Ottoman Sultan was also the Islamic caliph and had at least nominal sovereignty over most of the Arab world, which is not the entire Islamic world, but a, a core part of it. And shortly in, in the complicated aftermath of World War I, uh, the, their, the caliphate was abolished. Turkey became a secular state. And this was just a major blow to people of a certain strand of Islamic thinking, especially those who would become jihadists. So the idea that the Islamic State could reverse this historic tragedy and humiliation, that there had been this institution for something like 14 centuries, and then it was abolished at the dawn of the 20th century, they were going to reverse this. And that was just an amazing rallying point. So when that renewed institution comes under attack and is eventually beaten back, it it, it majorly depresses the, the excitement. If you had to predict what Syria would look like in 10 years, uh, what would your prediction be? Who 10 years ago could have predicted what Syria would be today? It looked like a relatively stable dictatorship. We'd seen the Assad family in charge really since the 60s. The idea of an Arab Spring seemed unimaginable. I mean, even when it began in Tunisia and Tunisia fell, no one thought it was going to spread across the entire region. To some degree, if you're taking odds based on the political science literature, which has done a decent job of documenting just how long civil wars tend to last, I think you'd probably have better than even chances of winning a bet that Syria will still be divided among several powers, with several foreign powers intervening, potentially with troops on the ground, and it'll look more like it 
like Syria today than it looks like, say, Syria pre-2011 of a, a unified state. You know, Russia and Iran have a point that they don't abandon their allies. One might add, no matter how loathsome those allies are, they'll stick behind Syria for as long as it lasts. Iran strategically assesses Syria as pivotal and believes it can't lose that link to Hezbollah and Lebanon. And Russia, of course, has tried multi-decade or close to century-long deals for its its military bases, both naval and air. So, you know, the wild card may be the United States. I mean, the point I would make if I was trying to persuade Americans there is a case for engagement. It's not just about all the issues we mentioned a minute ago, that we have these interests in Syria. What we actually had up until this inviting the Turks to cause chaos was stability at a very low cost. We were had a thousand troops on the ground, which is a fifth of what we had just next door in Iraq. Those thousand don't add a lot of cost given the overall presence and security structure we have in the Middle East. They were taking very few casualties. The the overall number for Iraq and Syria together in the uh, campaign against the Islamic State over the past five years is 17 fatalities in battle, according to the Pentagon. And most accounts say that eight of those are in Syria with nine in Iraq. Doesn't include non-combat. Obviously, you can have a car crash over there, too, unrelated to combat. So the point is, we had actually finally gotten to a place where, unlike Iraq or Afghanistan, where at points we had 100,000 or 150,000 troops, in Syria, it was a couple thousand or even down to a thousand with a fair amount of stability in protecting our interests. It was basically a sustainable presence financially and militarily, and it would be foolish to turn our back on that. The Arab Spring, it's not a phrase you hear that often. And when you hear that phrase, it's typically with a note of sad irony. Is there anywhere in the Arab Middle East where the early promise of the Arab Spring still has appeal? The closest thing to a green shoot of freedom is probably Tunisia, where they just had an election. Some of my colleagues actually went to monitor it. It's the only place really where you've seen alternation in power, where people have been elected, have controlled the government, Islamist, non-Islamist, and have then handed off when the, the other side did better at the polls. So there's a lot going wrong in Tunisia as well, economically, as a place where extremists made a lot of inroads, and Tunisia sent a quite a large number of young men to fight for the Islamic State. I mean, don't mean the government, of course. I mean that young men decided on their own to do it. And for whatever reason, they didn't have a problem, you know, turning their back on their home. But, uh, you know, all in all, if we're going to look at one one place that holds out some sort of promise, that would be it. I think there were a lot of people who were inclined to the somewhat condescending belief that population of Arab countries either had a natural preference for stability or just would never mobilize themselves for various reasons and challenge their governments that they really didn't see an appeal. You know, we've seen this play out in Asia and elsewhere. People say, oh, other, other people don't have an interest in Western values or in freedom. That's just something that we, it's a, a cultural artifact of the West or of a particular strain of thinking in the West. And we saw that those people are willing to rise up out of dissatisfaction. And what they begin to ask for, sometimes it's freedom as we think of it. Other times it's a freedom more in line with Muslim Brotherhood thinking on the matter. But now we're seeing big protest movements in both Lebanon and in Iraq, where, again, when people are not satisfied, when their governments are failing them, they are ready to take to the streets rather than taking weapons in their hands. They take to the streets in a generally peaceful manner, but there's certainly been violent issues and try to demand better. I don't think we're necessarily headed for good outcomes in either Lebanon or Iraq for a number of reasons. 
but certainly what has changed is no one no one really takes it for granted anymore that if you're a dictatorship in the Middle East, you can trust that your people won't come out in the streets and try to take you down if you abuse them. David Adesnik of Foundation for Defense of Democracies, thank you so much for joining us on the Quillette Podcast. Uh, it's been my pleasure. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to quillette.com where you will find more content.